Staging Sound, a podcast reflecting on theatre music, sound design, sonic practices and experiences. Welcome, my name is David Rösner and in today's episode, Millie Taylor, Agent Curtin and I have a discussion about sonic experiences and how to write about them, prompted by a paper written by Millie in 2006 called Exploring the Grain, the Sound of the Voice in Bruce Nauman's Raw Materials. Links to this article and to many of our references are in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. We decided again to take a piece of what we call old writing, which is sort of writing which is, which is, uh, which has a few years on its on its back, as a starting point. And uh, in the case of the piece that Millie is going to introduce to us very briefly in a minute, it lends itself very well to a bit of an exploration on uh, experiencing and then writing about sonic sonic experiences, sonic uh, uh, events, uh, because of course that is already a, a translation process that is not that easy to, to do. Um, and we'll try to untangle some of the mm. encounters we've had with this and some of the strategies how we've dealt with it and some of the insurmountable obstacles we have <laughs> probably discovered. But first, uh, Millie, do you want to tell us a bit about your piece on, which was I think inspired by uh, visiting a Bruce Nauman installation? Yes, um, this was a, an installation that Bruce Nauman did at the Tate Modern in the UK, in London. Um, and there was a series funded by Unilever that, of installations in that space. Um, and one of the things about this particular installation, which was entirely a sound installation, um, was that it followed a previous installation which had a huge sun and audiences responded performatively to the sun. And I was really interested in the way audiences responded uh, performatively to this installation. And I can tell you a bit more about the um, content of the installation if I get asked that question. Sure. But, um, tell us more about the content of the installation. <laughs> well, I'll come back to that. Um, but I just want to say that this, I, I published an article about this um, in 2006 in the notes section of Studies in Theatre and Performance. Um, but looking back at the article, as we have done in, in these uh, last couple of days, I realised that a, a first part of what I originally wrote is no longer there or was never published. And I don't remember how that happened. I have absolutely no memory of the sequence of events by which that happened. Um, but I was engaging with, the, with thinking about the process of writing about sound even then. And it's something I haven't engaged with for many years, but I suddenly feel like we've turned back to that moment and are asking questions about sonic writing. So it seems an appropriate topic for this conversation. Yeah, I mean, can you tell us a bit, a bit about the, the the part of the essay that that doesn't appear in in print? You had you had a different opening in mind. Yes, um, what I did was, I mean, it it was sort of flavour of the month at the time, particularly in feminist writing, in thinking about um, one's place and placing oneself differently in writing, and in order to do that, one of the tools um, quite simple tools we used was to use um, different kinds of um, uh, font. 
So I had several different kinds of font in this article. And one of the things I did was I, I started with a quotation from Burroughs about the nature of sound and how it touches, which I know you were talking about last week in the previous podcast. And the idea that sound um, reaches in, inside the ear, and therefore reaches inside the body. Um, and then I asked the, the reader whether they would read that aloud and to think about their own voice in the space they were sitting in and think about their voice as a material object in that space. And so I wanted to start by trying to get a sense for the reader of their place in reading and in writing, but as a sounding person rather than simply as a silent reader reading a text off a piece of paper which, of course, is then the experience that you get when you go to sound installations to some extent and in some cases. Mm. I, wonder, so I wonder how this, this invitation didn't, didn't end up in the, in the article. You say you don't remember, but I mean, I'm wondering if the editor of STP uh, might have looked at this and thought, oh, well, that's, that's a piece of, of whimsy, but we can do without it. Let's just cut to the, cut to the quick and, and let's get to the analysis. And does that tell us something? I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't remember, and um, I don't want to impute any blame on, on anybody who isn't here to speak for themselves. Um, I honestly don't remember how that happened, whether this was an early draft that I wrote, and it's what I remember, bearing in mind the, the falsity of memory. Um, I don't know whether this is something that I'm misremembering, but I have the text in front of me of this version. Um, which is what I thought I'd sent, but it's, well, almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to remember. And, and reading back through this article, I'm actually more um, pleased with it than I remember being mm-hmm. because, because of that sense of thinking about ideas like how we can subvert our response in the discipline. You know, we've got a written text. How are we going to explore sound in that context? And I think that was clearly something I was already thinking about um, in relation to academic writing. Can you remember, because I mentioned this at the beginning, that we, we may find it difficult to describe sounds. I mean, we have a technical language in musicology, for example, for certain types of music, let's let's be clear about that. Not all music falls under those um, those descriptors, but but we can reasonably well, you know, outline how a particular symphony starts or something like that, um, and at least communicate to someone who speaks that language how that works. But with sounds, it's much more difficult. And what you're describing is essentially as a sort of a sonic textual experience. So it's 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 recorded voices that Bruce Nauman disperses around the room, uh, a very big, incredibly reverberant mm. space. It's a wonderful space to go to. Um, and you you almost have to, and you feel, as I read, uh, you know, highly invited to wander around the place and, and sort of um, almost do like a physical cocktail effect. So you, mm-hmm. rather than just pricking your ears mm-hmm. to a certain conversation in the room, you actually just go there and, and listen to it because it's there. But you do listen because in all the in-between spaces, all those voices overlap and intermingle and become 
noisy, for, for lack of a better word, so it's no longer intelligible. And also, as you described, the voices are looped, and so to a point lose their... You, you, you don't listen to them for dramatic information about a character or something like that. So what, what I'm wondering is how difficult is, is that to capture uh, in, 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 in words rather than... Um, to some extent, it is difficult to capture in words, but um, what I was trying to do was to give that sense that what you have is a series of different um, sound sources throughout the space which all have different material in them. And therefore, your movement as a... Um, an audience member, an auditor of this installation, is that your movement moves your ear closer to one speaker or another, and therefore your movement gives you control over your listening experience. And it was that that I was trying to capture, that sense of sound um, giving performance or giving performativity to the, view, to the auditor. Um, and so people had particular ways of moving through that space in order to listen to this speaker for a moment and then to that speaker. So that idea of listening to uh, a particular sound source and being surrounded by a more atmospheric or, gen or generic sound is what I was trying to capture. So one could take different approaches to, to making sense of that and to trying to communicate something of that experience to the reader. Obviously, one has to pick a, a route, right? But I was, as I was listening to you, I was imagining, well, one could do a kind of ethnographic thing, right? And, and uh, you know, do a kind of detailed analysis of everything one sees about the fellow, one's fellow audience members. How are they moving in space? Um, how are they relating to one another? What do they look like as they are as they are listening? Do they look as if they are moved? Um, one could, uh, you know, write a, a wholly subjective account of one's own wandering in that space without any connection to, um, you know, the other the other participants or without without any kind of um, you know interrogation of the of even the individual sound sources one could write an entirely um, exploratory uh, piece of, of performance writing that might endeavor to capture something of that sense of um, you know confusion or um, you know things uh, occasionally coming into focus um, unexpected resonances. I mean, maybe that would be the most authentic way of of communicating to a reader what it is like, or what it is like for 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 the experiencer to encounter that particular um, installation. Mm. I don't know how how rewarding that would be, or if a reader would would want to go on that on that you know wandering through words in order to try to capture something of an experience that doesn't necessarily lend itself to articulation. Yes, and I think I think there's there's a combination of methods we have that we sort of generally use that I've I've seen in your own work as well that there is a combination of a phenomenological response what did it feel like for me how did I move in that space what felt like the important thing to do in that space and what seems the most important things to communicate about it that's entirely from a personal perspective, but equally, I could analyse the way other people were moving in that space and make the comparison with the previous installation, which had 
encouraged a different kind of audience engagement with the installation. It wasn't a sound installation, but it encouraged audiences to behave, to perform different responses. And so I think documenting both of those things gives us some um, sense of what the experience was. But then alongside that, there's the there's the practical, factual information about what was being said, how it's been recorded, something about Bruce Nam. And so it seems to me that in trying to encompass the experience, we have a difficulty with trying to communicate what sound experiences are. And so we, we sort of cover the gaps with a combination of the historical or contextual materials reviews or um, responses of other people, analysis of the thing itself, thinking about the technology that's being used. So we have tools, but I think, I think it, there is something to be explored about the ways we are writing and the, the ways our disciplines um, expect writing to be presented about sonic objects that don't necessarily fit into those moulds. Mm. Um, and I was aware of it in, in both of your writing in, in other ways, mm. um, in terms of thinking about what it is we're saying about sound. Um, I don't know whether you want to say anything about uh, the experience you had in practice and the kinds of materials you chose to write about bearing in mind other people also wrote about that same work. I mean, so you're referring to the article I, I wrote about um, playing the maids, um, a, a co-created piece um, that I did with others mentioned in the last podcast. So I won't, the last I won't podcast. see previous episodes. Uh, yes, I won't uh, rehearse it in, in depth. Um, and in, in that experience, I guess part of what I was trying to do with um, my one of my fellow co-divisors, a, a, a man, a very wonderful and curious man named uh, Mick O'Shea, who's also from Cork, and he's a, a sound artist. He's a member of Gate Crash. Um, uh, and so uh, part of my creative process was trying to find a way of, um, I would say communicating with him, that makes him sound like an alien, um, but his, <laughs> way of, his way of working was very different to mine. I mean, he does um, improvisation sound, improvisation by um, miking objects and creating this kind of live in space. He doesn't, uh, I mean, he says that he doesn't plan to create certain sounds and every, every, everything he creates is new and for the first time, which is wonderful, but it is in some ways antithetical to... Um, processes of making theatre where you, you, you know, you have a plan for things after a while and you kind of lock it down and then you know, everyone is expecting to have certain sound cues happen. Um, so part of, of my figuring out in, in that process was how to communicate with them, how to create a, a shared language. Um, someone who's a classically trained cellist, that's me, and someone who um, improvises, improvises sound. Um, so how to how to build a, a, a kind of a you know a coherent sonic musical language, um, and that emerged through improvisation and and conversation, where I, I asked him you know w w you know why it was when I you know brought in a piece of Bach one day and played it, why that didn't seem to work in the space because it was it, it created a sense of order that was no longer working with the kind of flux that we had going. Um, so it, that was a very interesting experience for me, um, creatively, 
Um, I don't know how much I, I endeavoured to communicate that as part of the article because I think I would have struggled to, as I am struggling right now in a way, to kind of articulate precisely what that experience was like. And I didn't feel the David Rosner-esque need to um, come up with a, 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 a category that would... <laughs> <laughs> readily I mean, increasingly um, stigmatized <laughs> in this, in this research. Okay. No, but it's something about about being okay with being kind of suspended yeah. in a kind of state of quasi knowing. Yeah, right? a kind of an artistic sense of well, I am, you know, I I I feel like I've sussed you out, Mick O'Shea, and the way you work, and I and I know how to work with you, and I think we've created something that works in the context. Do I really feel the need to uh, put that under the microscope and to try to you know apply my sort of academic thinking to it and then um, come up with some sort of paradigm that others might uh, might follow. I, I didn't have that I didn't have that need. But in terms of the aesthetic of what that sounded like, mm. that's a very difficult thing to communicate. It is. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of all those attempts, uh, whether it's Michael Chion or, or, or uh, Barry Truax or, or some others, to to categorize hearing. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying hearing is the same thing as experiencing sound, which I think is perhaps an even more embodied and and even more complex um, undertaking because it also involves the attached emotions or empathies or whatever you might call it. But simply the act of actually listening, um, they try to categorize in different ways. They say, Michel Chion says, you know, there is uh, sort of, it's not semiotic, it's... Uh, semantic. Semantic, thank yeah. you. Semantic listening, so you listen for the meaning of mm. something. You know, oh, this siren means there is an ambulance coming. That's a very simple, simple mm. uh, thing that's happening. And we tend to prioritize that because it gets us through gets us alive through the day yep. essentially and makes us understand if someone says do you want coffee <laughs> you know then we, we, we have the appropriate uh, response which is yes please what do they mean when they're asking do you want coffee and um, <laughs> and then there is the kind of the causal listening which is more about what is that was that a horse was that someone calling my name was that I sometimes have that in traffic. I go, like, is, mm. was that a drum kit? No, it's just a uh, working works, you know, road works or something. So you, you try to find out, is this, what is this? And then also decide, is this relevant for me? Is it interesting for me? And things like that. And then the last one is probably what we're talking about here at the moment, which is reduced listening. Although I don't like that word because mm. it always sounds yeah, deficient reductive. in some way. But it means reducing it to what it is. Simply to talk about, this is a sound that I can describe perhaps as grainy or granular or piercing or ongoing or whatever without describing where it's from what it means but simply what are the qualities of that sound and that is so difficult to describe and the minute we go into artworks that cater for those kind of experiences that do not reduce sound to something that tells us a story that is part of a narrative uh, same with music this mm -hmm. is a music that tells us oh this person is sad or this is but what if it's you know, as a drone of sorts or a soundscape of sorts. And and then it becomes really interesting because sometimes when we describe sounds, we use, um, we, we, we describe how it's made. This is a sound as mm -hmm. if a hammer struck wood. Mm. Or we describe uh, the actual sound itself. It's like a, I don't know, it's like a, or we liken it to yes. something, you know, so very often it's, it's like a scream or it's a bit like, or, you know, so we, we, we try to sort of connect to another experience that is a more interpersonal, more shared, mm -hmm. um, canonical mm -hmm. piece of sonic experience. 
or, or we sometimes talk about the effect. This sound made me queasy, or this mm. sound, as you have done in the launch episode, which I hope is out by now as well, um, where you talk about the... I've uh, been discombobulated. Yes, precisely, because it was so... An, a, a sort of messed with the tuning, yes. that piece of, of moderat, yes. as they're called, uh, mm. which kind of left you slightly um, in, a, in a slight vertigo almost. Yes. You know? So you talk about an effect. And... And I think that's all good. You know, I think uh, actually the difference between your experience, Millie, and yours, Adrian, is that in 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 doing it, in doing sort of music and sound in a, in a in a production, you easily come up with some kind of shorthand. I'm not saying it's easy. You, you need to develop a vocabulary. I, I completely and, and most theatre musicians I talk to describe that difficulty of communicating with an actor or a director when they say. One quoted a wonderful line by a director who said to him. Uh, this is a musician here in Germany, Jörg and the director said, can you do a bit more sort of bluish sweetness? <laughs> and that was her instruction for him to create sound. Now, you know, how does bluish sweetness sound? You know? well, that's, a, that's a great prompt. Though, it's right? a great because prompt. It, it, allows, it allows space around it. Sure, right? but depending on how open she is with yes. the results, you know, of what he interprets as bluish sweetness. And, and I think those musicians sometimes would love a slightly more technical, mm. can you do a bit more string or a bit, mm, you okay. know, can you take the bass but out? Do you, not, do you not think this might be some part of the reason why so often you will find director and musician, composer, composer uh, double acts? Yeah, who, who, stay, together who because, stay together. Yeah, who, fu- who found a language. Yeah. yeah, or at least they accept each other's language in the sense of bluish sweetness oh, well, I suspect he means something like that, but if I do this and play it for him, he'll probably accept that, you know, because that's how I interpret it and that's what I think this needs. But there is the other side of that in that sort of collaborative model, which is that famously Brecht and Weil worked together who um, Brecht had an idea of what he wanted something to sound like and Weil extended, expanded, altered, what, and it was okay. So it was almost like... Um, the director, or in this case the the writer, gave a model, an idea, an abstract sense of what the thing needed to sound like that was enough and that they were open enough, as you said, for what came back to be a positive and productive interaction. Because, you know, if you, if you see musicians working together, they will tend to be half playing. So they won't be speaking. They'll be sort of playing perhaps a few words, speaking, you know. So there'll be a, a, a sort of a, a language that goes on between them that is not necessarily verbal. And I think that's also important. And, and you know, I suppose one of the questions we're asking is, well, how do you capture that, that sense of collaboration and that sense of interaction that is not verbal. I think theatre is, in terms of research, almost a model case for looking at something like collective creativity, because, you know, obviously we've thought about creativity as something highly personal and individual for a long time following the 19th century and the whole cult of the genius and all those kind of ideas. And now we've discovered almost every art form is collaborative and the creativity is an emergent quality of things bouncing back and forth and and to the point that someone at the end of the day you wouldn't even remember whose idea it was or mm. something it just came out of something um, and that's great in theater because people actually talk about 
their ideas, they express it, and they express it, um, you know, verbally. But when when it becomes musical and sonic, it may well be that it escapes our mm. our academic scrutiny because mm. we we can no longer because it may happen literally through just a look or to, through listening and a response that we cannot trace, uh, at least not sort of in a, in a very clear way. Say, oh, this is clearly the impulse for yes. that tone to come and, out, and we're hesitant to apply language to it that will mistranslate the experience. I'm just thinking of times when I've read very detailed accounts of sound where the, where the author has endeavoured to um, provide almost purple prose right around um, a particular sound and you kind of, like, I, I don't connect to the thing that they're writing about and instead I'm just taken by the, 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 the glut of adjectives that don't quite do the job. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I think I think that, that it's made me think that I, I like I don't I try and steer away from that myself and actually just talk about the experience I have had of the sound. Yeah. Right. Rather yeah. than trying to kind of pin it down in in words. But there is a there is a, uh, something I tried to do somewhere in another piece of writing was to think about the experience of being in a group of musicians mm-hmm. and. Um, that experience is almost like breathing together and being in an, uh, a shared mind space because you're all playing together and you're all sharing a beat or what, however you're holding yourselves together. There is a concentration that um, becomes almost physical mm-hmm. in the space. And um, in that case, I related it to the concept of flow mm-hmm. because when you come out of it, it's almost like you've been submerged. Mm-hmm. And that period of time has passed with this intense moment of creativity. And that's not so much about the sound, but as the, of the experience of producing sound, of, of working together, um, which I think is perhaps part of this conversation because it's another part of that creative um, moment that is almost impossible to capture um, in, in the words we're using in, in mm. academic writing. But that doesn't mean that we can't experiment with ways of indicating those aspects that are, you know, um, inherent to the experience. Look, there are so many sounds around. I feel like there was a siren in the last There was a siren in the last one. This is going to be a, a, <laughs> running, a running joke <laughs> yeah. in this sense. Um, but like structurally, formally, by, you know, using different fonts or, um, you know, uh, intervening in, in the text, creating some kind of composition that will... Um, you know, in, give a sense of of, a, of otherness, right, or, or that, that which cannot be grasped. I mean, in a very, um, you know, we were joking about this a few days ago about because um, I had uh, I had structured the playing the maids article in, into track track titles. Mm. I mean, that was a bit of a gimmick, but I was also trying to in in that in that structure indicate that things were happening. Um, uh, kind of concurrently, mm-hmm. right? And that I was following a line of thought and then switching track and then going into another line of thought. So that it was a kind of multi layered composition rather than a kind yeah. of single authored entity, right? Um, so, try, so, I mean, I think there are ways that we can play with form um, and play with voice, right? Um, and, uh, you know, kind of queer language, I guess, in a way that might make it m- make those aspects that are. 
um, less able to be articulated, to give some sense of it to the reader. And actually using the multiple voices. Indeed. You know, I mean, I, we haven't read, but in your article you talk about other members of the collaborative team who have also written That's about right. it. And so actually having those multiple voices yes. gives that same sort of constellation effect of trying to get an experience of the work that is not from one perspective, yes. which is where we always stand as academics. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because I think it's one of the, the, the foundational problems in in our writing. Writing is linear. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's sort of a text reads from you know left to right and then line to line, um, and 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 we're meant to produce a linear argument as well, which is sort of you know one point follows the next, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what we talk about, uh, and this is sort of once we, once we embrace uh, performances not as simply um, sort of the, the, the delivery of a text, you know, which is equally linear and would sort of, you know, a, dr- a dramatic text mm-hmm. unfolds in linear time as well. But if we look at it as a, as a complex um, polyphonic, if you mm. wish, uh, artwork, and, it, 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 and that's, of course, already a musical metaphor, mm-hmm. then we have to describe things that are, that are simultaneous all the time. And that's particularly true for music and sound, because other than language, where if five people are talking at the same time, we hear gibberish, we can't, you know, it's, it's, it's not often done. We are more than used to listening to four voices sing at the t- same time, or having uh, ten different sounds play at the same time, if, you know, because that may create a, a wonderfully composed and, and constructed uh, soundscape, whether it's a natural one or an mm. uh, abstract one. Um, but trying to put something that is simultaneous and uh, and also at the same time engaging us intellectually, cognitively, understandingly, and emotionally, physically, uh, empathetically is really tricky because it's mm. so much to unpick. Mm. Even the shortest moment is so full of layers, you know, and that's mm. um, that makes it yeah. that makes it difficult to translate no, it to that linear like form. Theoretically, you could make a little a little digression. I think mm. I may have done that on occasion, yeah. where you kind of you know the, you you move from the the rational discursive analytical voice to have a little a little break where yeah. something else happens and you try to to describe some kind of fluxic state, right, and then it's returned to normal again, right? Which is, is, is might be a bit of a cheat, but otherwise might be a, might yeah. try to indicate that which is beyond, um, or you know, um, uh, more than just what the regular kind of discursive voice can achieve. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing is, I mean, we're talking strategies here, uh, which I experienced with another piece that I wrote um, about a sort of practice as research um enterprise or experiment that i did with uh, bella merlin uh, where we were interested in in using verbatim interview material um and transforming it in various ways musically heavily inspired of course by um adam cork and and alecky blythe's uh, london road uh, in, in in london uh, a sort of a verbatim musical although they never called it a musical so i don't want to uh, force that that term on them um but but the point I'm, i wanted to make is that we published that in a journal which is an online journal called journal for artistic research and they allow you to essentially use the web page as a as a sort of free landscape so you you can write a linear text but you can also write sort of columns that mm. you can read one after the other or always at the same time you can jump mm. so that you have that kind of polyphony in the writing and you can also weave in and this is another thing 
if you if you're allowed in terms of copyright, which is another big problem, uh, you can weave in sound examples, video examples, mm-hmm. um, uh, images, drawings, all sorts of materials. Mm-hmm. So you can actually include something that is difficult to describe simply as a sound file and say, well, you know, if if you don't trust my description of this, <laughs> here it is. If that's possible. Now, in that case, it was possible because we produced the material ourselves. It's much more difficult, of course, if you write about other people's art and then all the copyright headaches begin. But I think there's there's an interesting thing also about the idea of voices, particularly Mm. voices separate from other kinds of of materials that are sounding and you know we're we're demonstrating it here um there are three voices and we're assuming that listeners will be able to identify our separate voices and they will give a lot of information that i remember you talked about in the previous podcast about the the body of the speaker Mm -hmm. um but actually you know that encourages engagement with sound um that this speaking format has a different connection, I think, to a listener than an academic paper. And there's no hierarchy. I'm not suggesting a hierarchy. What I'm suggesting is that they're different and that um, either combining them or thinking about them as, as multiplicitous mm-hmm. is, is a healthy way to, think, to move forward in terms of thinking about you know, a sound theatre project. Absolutely. I, I, I wanted to pick up a, a word that you used in your article, which is materiality. And obviously you, again, flavour of the month now. It was flavour for, for a decade, I think, uh, going with Roland Barthes and the, the, the grain of the voice, which, you know, is an article or a chapter that I've quoted myself on numerous times because it was really influential at the time. And I, I still think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, yeah, an important piece of writing, uh, talking about the materiality, the, the lived experience, uh, the, the physicality of, of, of the voice. Um, but we have that in, in research too. I do think there's, a, as, as you say, it's not necessarily better or worse, but the difference, even just on re- reading an article in, uh, on paper or on a, on a tablet or on some other device or on your laptop screen, or, or hearing someone deliver it, is, it makes quite a bit of difference to how we, we receive it. Um, sometimes even to the level of, I don't know if you have that, where you listen to a, a conference paper and then read it afterwards mm-hmm. and either found it much less coherent or more coherent or were less convinced because maybe the the speaker had a very, you know, very convincing voice or something like that, or the other way around, something didn't come across at all because it was delivered poorly, and then you read it and think, this is really smart, this is very, very good, but it just didn't register at the time. It's, yeah, it's a fascinating thing to to look at materialities of research themselves, not mm-hmm. just an, of our objects. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's dependent on the on the academic. I mean, I think there are academics who um, who, who don't want or necessarily strive to um, include their own personality, shall we say, in the writing or their own subjectivity, mm-hmm. um, and I can imagine that they would they would not necessarily want to to know that the the grain of the voice was communicating. Right? I mean, the, it, the the effort is to try to um, in in that vein is to try to be as um, as neutral as possible or as objective as possible. This isn't a vantage point that I share, by the way. No, I'm no, always no. trying to you know, <laughs> weave in my own little personal quirks into into the into the writing. Um, uh, and I guess there's a kind of there's a concern in that regard in terms of well, is that is that indulgent, right? I mean, should one strive to extricate oneself from the from the writing so that it is you know more. Um, you know, it is more broadly communicable. 
Yeah, but but okay, can I just say that, and then I'll play the ball to you, Millie, because I think that notion of the neutral is very much a white male it is. notion. So going to Donna Haraway and other people about you know sort of the, the notion of situated knowledge, and and as you said, is it indulgent to talk about one's own? background or listening uh, habits or, or, or access to, uh, you know, certain languages of theatre yeah. or whatever it might be, it sounds perhaps, you know, indulgent if, if you are privileged to not have to think about that. You yeah. know, if it, and and I, I wanted to pick up on a point you made at the very, very beginning, which was to say um, this was also part of feminist writing and you mentioned queer mm. writing. And I think thinking back to for example Katharina Rost's book uh, on on experiencing sound um, who also has a decidedly at some point sort of introduces a, a queer perspective of sounding and listening to sounds I wondered if you could say a few more words about that is there feminist listening as it were is it is are there feminist writing strategies about listening how would you it's I know it's a big question but uh, <laughs> Um, to be to be honest, I I haven't really thought about it for a long while, um, and just coming back to this material has made me think about it again. Has made me think about that idea and something I've tried to do more and more as I've I suppose as I've become more confident as an academic, I've tried to place myself in the work more and more, um, and I think that is something about a feminist perspective, and it's a response to those issues that you just identified. I have no awareness of it beyond the fact that at the time that I was writing that article in 2006, I became aware that that, that was happening in feminist writing. I can't point you to any particular locations, but it, it was a thing. And it seems to have dispersed slightly. And I think that's partly because everybody has started to engage with this idea that there is no such thing as an objective point of view. And therefore, subjectivities have become... Um, more diverse and we have all become aware of a greater range of subjectivities and and express them in our writing and therefore it almost seems like there is no need to make the point anymore that well I need to do this because of you know a a feminist perspective I need to um, express this kind of voice what is my voice Um, so I suppose we have to some extent passed that moment but of course you know thinking back to the Connor thing, there is no question that my voice is at a different pitch to yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we already have a gender diversity in this podcast. And, and I think that's, it's a healthy thing that there's diversity. Mm-hmm. There are other diversities we're not representing. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was thinking about voices in relation to that, to that Naaman um, installation, which I didn't experience. I only have access to it through, through your essay. It did seem as though the, the voices had been um, abstracted from their original context. Am I right in thinking that there are there were recordings from previous works of his that work had been collaged, um, but it seemed as though as though they were kind of floating free in space from from their original context. So I was I was surprised to to read that you you felt empathetic connections to them because again I was reading it and going thinking would I feel empathetic connections to these voices I don't know that I would necessarily um, but it, it's not to the content of what they're saying so much as what they sound like mm-hmm. so if a, if a voice sounds like there is pain mm-hmm. then I also feel pain I mean cognitive studies in musicology talk about those sorts of things the patterns that the, the voices were looping on 
the uh, relaxation or tension in the voices, the pitch and timbre of the voices, the accents, um, all those qualities in the voices were things that my body would respond to um, and, and mirror. So that's the kind of empathy I'm talking about rather than me empathising with somebody bursting into tears because of an event that had happened. So, you know, that's what I mean in that sense. And I think that is something that we pick up just from sound, just from a, a person speaking. Mm, without any, any body attached to it. I'm thinking of the ghost of Peter Vestrata here and what he would say about yes. disembodied voices and, and our need to project them onto something in order to, you know, make sense of them. Um, but even, yes, even the recorded voice floating free in space um, can, can move us. But, yes, but, but I well, think yeah, does it? I mean, that's the question. Does it flow free in space, or do we construct? Because you, you used the same uh, word as Peter in the last episode quoted Stephen Connor, the the, the, the notion of the voice body, um, <laughs> where you know you kind of construct, not even necessarily very consciously. It's not like you you flesh out literally flesh out a, a specific body, but there is a sense of there is a body, and we may have some fantasies about. Do, do you do you hear a voice without any? I, I think I, I don't think ah. I attribute a body to right, a voice. Yes, I'm not. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> I have this response to Peter too. I was like, a really, yeah. I, I've never uh, imagined this vocal body. This is, but this is what um, Stephen Connor has been writing mm. about in um, Dumbstruck. Dumbstruck. Um, but uh, whether or not one constructs an imaginary body, um, I think one does understand the tensions of speaking. So, for example, if I tighten my jaw, you would right. notice the difference and it would affect you in a yeah. different way. Um, that wasn't my jaw, but anyway, you know, but, but you see what I mean? You, the, the, the tone of voice actually gives a lot away about the tension in the, in the body. And yes. because you also have a body and you know what that tension feels like... Unless we're talking about artificial voices. Of course, of course. That's just speech sounds recombining. Yes. Right? Yeah. At the end of these these kind of conversations, we, we usually ask ourselves, as if we'd done ten of them, um, <laughs> you know, where where have you gone from here? You were fearing that you you would be unkind to your own, uh, own article in retrospect, and we're sort of as I as I heard a slightly more positive about it now. But are there things where you feel? research has moved on around you or you, your own research obviously has moved on you're thinking about these things or have you just simply moved away from the, the topic because you're still engaged in voice and in, in sound and in music Yes, I, I actually moved away from it for a period when I was focusing very exclusively on musical theatre and um, I have I feel that by moving back into um, thinking about theatre music and then the sounds and how sounds are created. Um, I feel like I've almost gone back full circle and, and I'm looking at these same theoretical, um, this same theoretical body of work. Um, and I'm actually sorry that, the, um, that my little experiment in trying to get the reader to speak um, didn't work. I think, I think clearly I've might phrase frame the article slightly differently and I might conclude it in some different ways but I'm sort of looking at it now and, and sort of feeling reasonably that it that it does express something that I felt at the time and that is still useful in terms of thinking about sound as texture in space 
and thinking about the relationship between how we listen and hear and how you know i'm very aware as i'm as i'm speaking of of the vibration of the um, resonance in this room we're sitting in which is a lovely resonance um it's quite loud and and vibrant and it makes you want to speak in it mm-hmm. to want to sound in it and and it's almost like finding ways of expressing that and i was exploring that at that time and I, I went away from it for a while and I sort of feel like I'm now enjoying being back there yeah I think the other thing that I feel not about your article in particular but about our field um, is that we have for a very long time written with a sort of you know in, in theatre for a long time we had the ideal spectator or mm. the ideal reader and all those kind of constructions because we we, didn't, we couldn't cope with Actual. The, the, the messy the messy Responses. empirical you know reality of, of spectators who are you know if you've got 800 people watching you've got 800 different experiences and we can't account for those the, the thing I'm thinking about in relation to sound is that we have sort of an ideal as it were and big quotation marks able-bodied or uh, uh, you know um, able-bodied listener who's got, you know, functioning uh, ears and stereo and, and, and every, everything is sort of from a medical point of view and this is again in big uh, quotation marks normal. And I think that that is something that has come more to our attention, I, I, I would suppose, that, that that is quite a construction and that it is, and it's not a healthy construction, yeah. construction because I think to, to, to pretend that you, there is such a thing as a normal listening uh, or a, he- a healthy listening. That, from a medical point of view, I can see that there's a perhaps a point. But even then, even then, our our, our frequency range in terms of what we can hear shifts as we as we age. Yes. Right. So we don't all hear the same and, things. Yeah. And if we if we um, look at theatre audiences uh, who you know, as we know, tend to be of older age, it's mm-hmm. not so much that we have the the eighteen year olds mm-hmm. who's, who who still can hear twenty thousand hertz. You know, like um, dog, you've dog got people <laughs> in there with with hearing aids, with with all sorts of uh, um, you know a normal sort of wear and tear of mm-hmm. of the ears, and still we pretend that there is we're not really engaging in that question of what do people actually hear, how do they hear it, do they mm-hmm. is it already amplified, mm-hmm. is it you know there's induction loop, are they called induction loops, you know those yeah. systems that yeah. play it to you, that's a whole different listening experience, mm-hmm. um, and that's I'm, I'm, I'm not. I don't have an answer for that, but uh, it's it's uh, something that is even more difficult, perhaps, to account for yes. than than different viewing experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's inherently more variability in audience reception in theatre, right? Because of the fact that the audience is is dispersed in space, yeah. right? So we'll hear the sound differently depending on on where they are, um, and I guess this is uh, this is being um, changed. Um, as audiences become more desirous of better quality sound, right? So sound designers are endeavouring to kind of create a kind of auditory oral experience in in theatre that is more equivalent to uh, a cinema experience, right? So a kind of Dolby surround or, or, you know, headphone theatre where everything is um, as, as one would optimally wish it. But then you don't have that sense of of um, variety of oral experience, except through you know whatever one yeah, can yeah. process oneself. Um, but I think I think the other thing you lose in in that sense is um, 
you miss the surround sound. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we've we've enjoyed hearing that siren and the little pings going on in the background. I don't think Dad has enjoyed it. I think Dad oh, has, like, has, has bristled every time something in this room that makes sounds that he doesn't want to I make sounds. I'm clenched as you can hear. Yeah. I'm open to all of the sounds. Yes. Good. But, you know, actually, part of the theatre experience is being in the space with other people. And if that means that you can't hear every word... Is that the, something the sound designer should be worried about? I and I, 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 mean, I agree with you. I like I like yeah. the variability, yeah. but culturally, yeah, yeah, yeah. we are more we are less um, tolerant of suboptimal hearing experiences. It's true. Yeah. And you, and you are in, in, endeavouring to create a, a, as acoustically perfect uh, a recording as you can, um, you know, rather than have something quick yeah. and dirty. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't go as far as saying perfect because then we'd be in a studio and we'd have slightly more upmarket equipment here. But but to have something where in this format of the podcast, yeah, good sound, good sound. We did a whole thing on good sound. We did a whole publication on good sound and and questioning what Mm. that meant. But I think I think in this case it means not having to, you know. to penetrate sort of the, 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 the layer of sort of, for example, someone, I hear listen to podcasts where someone phones in with a, with a telephone and having to constantly go through the layer of distortion and, and reduction caused by this uh, machine is, is just, uh, is work. It's sort mm-hmm. of uh, auditory distress, to call it uh, that, uh, following Peter's suggestion. Um, so, yes, I mean, I think it's, it's, you know, I think a podcast is a very different medium to um, to theatre. So, uh, <laughs> embracing theatre noise, which is the title of a book I co-edited with Lynn Kendrick, is not the same as embracing uh, embracing podcast noise, I, I suppose. But but actually, to go back to that theatre experience where people have all different hearing abilities, it's going to be diverse. And and I suppose the the point that we started with was how do we write about sound and we have to we have to write about it to some extent from what we hear yeah. um, because that is the only hearing we have and although you might get um, a prismatic approach by asking a number of people and perhaps co- co-authoring and collaborating and all those kinds of things um, I, I wonder the extent to which that's helpful and whether maybe just acknowledging our own subjectivities is one of the ways. Well, it's to inevitable, talk about isn't it? it? I think that's that's. That, I think, and that is progress to to um, to no longer pretend there is a sort of objective standpoint. And, but still, that doesn't mean to indulge in pure subjectivity in the sense that, oh, but it's my opinion, and therefore, you know, you can't who, critique who, it. You right. can't critique it precisely, but um, but to acknowledge it and then try to construct sort of an objective observation of that subjective mm. experience which is probably as close as we can get mm. um, I want to perhaps finish if I may uh, on, a, on, a, on a note which is sort of a the, the, you know, they call it the small hill to die on or the bugbear or whatever you want to call it which you repeat, not you, but the quotation you, you, you have at the very beginning of your article uh, repeats that, and which, is, uh, which is this it's by uh, Burroughs um, mm. and it says the sound, like the touch of a hand moved by a will other than my own, is not so easily ignored. I cannot shut non-existent earlids. So this is one of those tropes, and I think I, I would like to add it to Jonathan Stern's um, litany. Um, have you written it down, litany? Wonderful. Okay, well, great minds think alike. So this is, this is Jonathan Stern's um, 
list uh, of things that keep being said about sound and keep being said about the ears as opposed to the eyes and you know I don't know vision is directional sound is uh, omnidirectional whatever it might be yes of course there is a physical difference between our ears and our eyes um, but if I may be so blunt as to say our, our eyelids are too pieces of our body that close the eyes and we have two fingers that we can put into our ears <laughs> and I, I don't have a problem calling my fingers my earlids <laughs> and uh, and we use them all the time look at children when it gets noisy they have an instant reaction of course we use them yes if we have got something in our hands etc you know it's i'm not saying it's the same thing but this this pretends that we we we, we cannot but we be cannot by the yeah we cannot us. sort of we cannot escape and uh, the sounds around us whereas we can totally switch off and the eyelids of course as we know also if you've got the sun shining in mm. you see tons of things you know and it's bright and it's, it can even be still disturbing so again it's one of those uh, oppositions that is repeated here not, in, not necessarily yeah. in your article but in the, in the quotation that I just uh, needed to get out there that I, yeah. that I have but, a problem but, but with I think, I, think, I think there is there are two things one is that um, uh, I think one of the things that he does talk about and, and I, I to some extent agree and I would counter with the ideas of, of listening and hearing and yeah. oral attention. So one can focus one's ears onto one thing and to some extent shut out many other things. But loud sounds do vibrate. And of course, as you say, uh, bright sunshine also feeds through our Those eyelids. Waves, yeah. But I think there are things about the vibration of sounds that do affect us phys physically. Yes, no, absolutely. I, I agree with that. Um, and, and certainly, I mean, anyone, by the way, on, on, on all of those notions, I, I want to briefly mention or give a shout out, as they say, I think, in podcast language, um, give a shout out to a wonderful film, which is called Touch the Sound. On oh, the, yeah. On the, on the rather uh, Evelyn fantastic Glenny, Evelyn Glenny, yeah. precisely one of the top percussionists uh, in, in the world who uh, who is is deaf, sort of, as, as sort of medically speaking, but of course, who listens through her body and who, who in the course of that film um, asks a very simple very profound question which is to other people so you know they, they, they tell me but you can't listen I li do listen and then they say, and she said well how do you listen and they can't really describe it and it's just a different part of the body that vibrates essentially you know and they, they again they take that for normal and the other thing for not normal and she obviously she listens through her whole body through through every cell that vibrates as you say you know and, and therefore um, it's just a different different way of, of listening but mm. it's a it's a very good um, mm. film that tries to visualize what it means to yeah to be all ears indeed so yeah. the thing is to is to embrace you know bodily all bodily listening like cross sensory listening rather than I think to do the thing that Burroughs does here which is in a in a kind of slightly reductive way to assume that like hearing and seeing are are oppositional which we yeah. which we know they, they they are they aren't right um and i think that makes that makes the the complex of the experience more richer right and more more um more multi-layered yeah um so the the extent to which we can try to account for that um you know i think is the, is, is the strategy that we have to pursue i think the one other quick thing I will say, which is the McGurk effect. I was just going to say that. We're, we've just read the same books. <laughs> yes. We? Yes. Well, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. Which, which is the, uh, when the, the lips are moving and the sound is being played, it can look like the lips are saying something other than they are because you're 
always using both ears uh-huh. and yeah, eyes. I think there are YouTube videos where yes, people like, manipulate uh, this. We will put them in the show notes. For a comedic effect. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. You, you, you're, you're positive to hear one thing when clearly with that, if you shut your eyes or see a different video, you notice, oh no, this mm. person is saying a different syllable. Mm. But because you had a sort of uncorresponding image, it changes the way. That's mm. precisely sort of proof of what you just said, mm. Adrian, that, that they are connected and mm. they can heavily influence each other, even to the point of, of you know, hearing something that's definitely not being said, you mm. know, um, which is fascinating. Well, in this podcast, you did not see us, therefore you've listened <laughs> and, and have heard everything correctly. <laughs> um, thank you very much for, for listening, for lending, you our, lending us your ears. And um, we'll hear each other again soon. Thanks very much. Many thanks for listening to this episode of Staging Sound. If you'd like to get in touch, please email stagingsound at web.de. Staging Sound at web.de. Thank you.